my dad was always working and I was left to my own devices. And I remember going on this website called retireat21.com. I just remember reading about these like, these young people who had started businesses, who had started these like internet marketing businesses, etc. And just thinking, wow, that's insane. That's Timothy Armu, the co-founder of Fanbytes, a social media marketing business. Growing up on a council estate in Hackney, it was the realisation that he was poor when he was a teenager that motivated him to become an entrepreneur. He did exactly that. And whilst he might not have retired at 21, he did just sell Fanbytes, his second startup, for eight figures at the age of 27. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we're here to ask founders the questions you won't hear anywhere else. Timothy, or Timo as he's known, is a really fascinating entrepreneur. I've known him for a while and what has always struck me is how reflective he is about his journey and as you'll hear, he's learned a lot along the way. He's wise beyond his years. We talked about what happened after he lost almost half the money he got selling his first business at 17 in just three months. How the death of his father in his early 20s was a pivotal moment in deciding how he was going to grow fanbites, and how he doesn't feel he has to make his next business bigger than the previous one. But first, he told me about his childhood and how it shaped him. I guess I grew up in two different places. I was born here in Hackney, and then I went to live in Ghana for 10 years. And then I came back here in year six. I went to live in Ghana because my nan basically came to take me from London. I was like, yeah, you're going to live in Ghana because you need, well, basically my family had a whole bunch of issues. And so it was either that or foster care, basically. And so I lived in Ghana, came back here in year six. And then, uh, yeah, and then I went to state school. Then I went to boarding school. Then I went to uni. Pretty eventful, shall we say. Pretty eventful. Yeah, because I mean, the whole idea of basically like before I was even three months old, going to live in a completely different continent and then, you know, really pretty much like living with my nan um, until coming at 11. I mean, it's not a conventional way. Right. And so that was very different. Um, Now I look back and I think actually that was a really good upbringing, you know, I grew up on like the Oaken Road, Southeast London, pretty close to Peckham, like during those times. Part of me feels like if I had grown up like here around that time, I feel like it could have been wrong. <laughs> I feel like things could have taken a bit of a weird turn. So let's talk about some of the key moments in your life, because I know from when we've spoken before, you're quite reflective. You're quite a reflective person in general, more so than most. I would say, um, which I like. I think that's why we've always got on quite a lot. You, you know, you, you do put some time in thinking about what shaped you. And just before we do that, just remind our listeners, how old are you now? So I'm 27. So it's interesting, right? Because obviously to most people, 27, you know, that is like what they consider to be a young man. And we're talking about the young man, you know, really I'm talking <laughs> about more 16, 17 year old Tim. Um, but, you know, e- even even then, um, I feel like you were quite reflective. So talk, let's talk about some of the moments that shaped you in your teens and late teens that started to make you the thought-provoked person that you are? So I think there were quite a few, quite a few moments. I think around 15, 16, I think I had this mental shift where I thought, oh my God, I'm poor. Like <laughs> It's almost as if I woke up one day and I thought, oh yeah, like, Things that other people have, I don't have. And the reason why is because I don't have money. And so that was quite a big kind of trigger for me to think, wow, like it is possible to not let your age dictate, you know, how much you make in life. And that actually was then the thing that led me to start in a previous business to fanbytes called Entrepreneur Express. So that was basically, you know, 10 years ago, that was an online business media publication pretty simple. Think about, you know, business insider, entrepreneur.com, like pretty much that stuff. And I really wanted to turn into a business, but I really cared also about like journalism and all that stuff. So that business publication, I basically 
parlayed it into interviewing some really cool people. So I interviewed people like Richard Branson, uh, James Kahn, Alan Sugar, all of these people I got in there by basically maneuvering myself into these events where they were speaking and asking people if I could be part of the press and all that stuff. And that was a very key pivotal moment for me because the magazine was an online version and an offline version. And with the offline version, my whole thing was like, let's get a print publication and let's give it to universities, let's distribute it to all their students. So I called up people like, you know, like Oxford Entrepreneur Society, Cambridge Entrepreneur Society, Warwick, which was the uni that I went to. And they were like, yeah, 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 we'll take it. The thing is, it didn't cost them anything. So of course they'll fucking take it. Uh, um, but the thing that I, the thing that I actually came to realize, I was like, oh my God, to turn this into a business, I actively need to have advertising revenue, print advertising revenue. And I realized this quite late, like in August, I had all the content and everything and I had enough money to support the first kind of few runs, but not to turn into a business. I tried to call up a number of companies, et cetera. But again, I was like 17. I was like really nervous to talk on the phone, et cetera. So what ended up happening was I had to basically turn off that offline version. But then I focused on the online version and here's where the story really comes in. I was thinking about how we drive traffic and all that stuff to these sites. And I was thinking, yeah, Google ads, SEO, et cetera. But remember, this was 10 years ago. This was in like the heydays of Facebook and, you know, Facebook pages and all that stuff. So the thing I actually started to do was I became very good at being able to grow like Facebook pages. And basically, you know, I'd create a page around like Tony Robbins and, you know, stuff like that. And then I'd just drive traffic from there to the site. And what ended up happening was within, within about 11 months, I got approached by a company called Horizon Media who basically said, hey, we're interested in partnering up. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, partnering up, that sounds cool, etc." And we got on a Skype call. And I remember this, I was wearing my Man United shorts. It was like 2 a.m. on a Friday. And then they were like, hey, actually, um, rather than partnering up, we're wondering if you'd be interested in just like selling to us. And I was just like mental, you know, at 17, someone just said, bro, here you go. And I was like, yes, 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 take it. Um, but I then realized that, so I thought the thing we were buying was the blog and the traffic to it. But actually what they were really interesting was buying in all those Facebook pages and all those communities. So that was a very pivotal moment for me because I was like, oh my God, like the social communities is what they cared about. And it also just showed how I could just imagine something and it just worked. It was like, I just imagined this idea. I drove traffic through it. I built content around it. I did all that stuff and then sold it. And it was like, what the heck? Like, this feels like magic, basically. So that was a very pivotal moment for me, I'd say. And are you able to talk about any of the terms of that deal? Like, what, like how life-changing was that for a 17-year-old? No, no. Yeah, no. Uh, so the... So the principal amount was 80 grand. And then I had a performance bonus, which was actually based on um, basically how big the Facebook pages got, which basically came up to about 40 grand. And so in all, it was 120 grand for a 17 year old. I was just like, what the heck? Like to me, that was just an incredible amount of money. And it just showed me like the power of, again, just business and social. So that was a very uh, profound thing for me. It's quite a lot that's written and said and talked about, uh, you know, that poverty is a mindset and feeling mm. poor is a mindset. Um, and for some people can't really escape the feeling of being poor no matter what happens. So, you know, you're 15, 16 and you're, you wake up one day, you realize that you feel poor, but now the reality's mm. flipped completely, right? You've got 120 grand and you're a 17 year old. So probably one of the best off 17 year olds out there, full stop. <laughs> um, how did you feel? So, you know, what's so interesting. I actually ended up, <laughs> I actually ended up squandering about 50 grand of that within about three months by just doing stupidity. I tried to learn spread betting. It's like, what the heck, you know, just so much ridiculousness. So I think when I saw that, 
I felt like I was, you know, incredibly, I, I, I felt I was like Richard Branson level wealth. Um, and then I really like dug into, so at that time I was in boarding school and I went to a school called Christ Hospital. And, you know, there I was lucky enough to get a pretty good um, scholarship. And the people there were like rich, like rich, rich. And I remember a specific day. So what happens is every three weeks in that school, you get to go home and stuff. And I remember a specific day I was kind of waiting for the train to uh, to go back to London because this place was in Sussex. And a helicopter came on the field. Like a helicopter came to pick up a student. And I remember seeing that and going, oh, okay, like there's another level here. Like there is helicopter wealth. Uh, because when I sold Entrepreneur Express, I was like, yeah, I've made it basically, right? And I think that alludes to this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, ceiling, right? It was like, I'd put a ceiling on me because I didn't know it was possible to go higher. And so that's why I ended up spending so much of the money so quickly because almost felt like I didn't deserve the money, right? It was almost like, well, you live in a council house, bro. Like, this is not for you type thing. And so that time when I saw the helicopter and I was like, oh, okay, like actually you don't need to be, you know, Richard Branson or Steve Jobs or anyone to be like really, really, you know, quote unquote successful. Actually, you can be a virtual nobody, right? I don't actually know what his parents did to be able to get the helicopter, but they weren't famous. And I was like, wow, okay, it is possible to, to like get to that level. So that again was a big mindset shift for me, but I completely agree beforehand, I did have quite a, a poverty mindset, I'd say, which was, I felt like I didn't deserve money. Um, and you needed that to really uh, shift my perspective, definitely. So you're a young guy, you start meeting some people with, with more than you. Uh, do you reckon you have a chip on your shoulder? Do you have a bee in your bonnet? Do you have a sort of edge about you that's like, all right, well, I kind of just made this and you didn't make this. Your parents <laughs> gave it to you. So I'm Timo. Like, what's happening to your ego at this point? Mm. And I'm asking because um, you're human, basically. So so I think going to boarding school was a super interesting uh, shift in identity. And the reason why it was is because... so. I mentioned earlier that I went to a state school. Um, so before I went to boarding school, I went to a school called uh, City of London Academy. And in that school, um, I was basically known as the smart one. And then I went to boarding school. <laughs> and then I realized, wow, <laughs> you know, there is a guy, I often, you know, tell this story to friends. There's a guy called uh, Luke Stevens, who incredibly intelligent. He he got full marks at A-level maths and further maths when he was 14, like just off the charts. So I think the thing that it did to my identity was that it made me almost go, okay, beforehand I was building my identity around being intelligent. And now I can't do that anymore in this, in this, uh, in this environment. So I had to build a new identity. And so that actually compelled me to want to build an identity around just being entrepreneurial because I realized that no one in that boarding school was entrepreneurial. So it was like, maybe that's a game I get to win. I can't win the intelligence game. I can't win the sporty game because again, in that school, there were people who were playing for like England rugby and sports and stuff. I'm like, okay, I can't win that one. So therefore the game I have to play is the business game. So I would say there was a chip on my shoulder, but it wasn't so much a chip on my shoulder kind of saying, well, you guys have got it handed to you and I haven't. I think it was more a chip on my shoulder was like, I need to be like the best at something. <laughs> and so that was actually something that, you know, that really drove me then to at least make some success of business. And how did you translate that, you know, uh I guess, early insight into something that worked for you and your surroundings. And, you know, more to that point, I'm assuming you'd go to boarding school, but then you'd come back to your family in a council estate, right? Yeah. So was it sort of feeling like sliding doors life? 
Yeah, what I I remember actually, such a good question actually. Um, I realized years ago I can't be a good entrepreneur, so I have to be a good podcaster. So I have to ask good questions. <laughs> um, it's a great question. <laughs> um, when I when I um, I remember you know, around that age, just before I went to uni. So basically like 16, 17, 18, every time I'd come back to the house, um, to the flat, I would have this small book and I'd basically write to myself saying, I'm not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be here. So because it was such a, just such a cognitive dissonance, like if anyone listening to this uh, you know, searches Christ hospital. It's like things like, you know, we marched into lunch every day. You know, the fees were like 27 grand a year. They were double that for international students. It was just like, what the heck? So for me, the big thing every time I came back was like, I'm not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be here. And I fully believed in that. Like, I just thought, oh, it's cool. You know, my dad was a first generation, um, immigrant, um, he had to come here to, you know, support the family, fend for himself. And I was an only child, right? So I don't have any brothers or sisters. So for me, it was like, okay, that's cool. He played his cards, but like, I'm not meant to be here. So yes, I think I definitely felt that kind of, that kind of a uh, feeling of just a bit of, you know, just a bit of indignation, maybe kind of like, how dare I be here, which did actually make me extremely driven. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Did you get people on the council estate trying to drag you back down? Did you get people? Yeah. Because, you know, this is another thing that comes up as a theme for people, right? You know, it's the sort of the jealousy that can creep in, the awareness that people have, um, and uh, especially with gang culture, yeah. right? Yeah. So what was really interesting actually about that is, um, <laughs> um, and I actually did a post about this on LinkedIn, um, ages ago, no, not ages, probably like six weeks ago, which was, so do you remember earlier I said that if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been in Ghana, I think I would have, you know, joined the wrong crowd. And I think that came out of a sense of wanting to belong to some sort of community. And so, so I knew some of the people who were in the wrong crowd, etc. And I remember once I tried to kind of, you know, 
join the gang. Not like join the gang, but more, you know, hang out with them just so there could be something to do, you know, <laughs> when you finish school, get something to do. And I remember one of the guys who is in jail now. Um, so, you know, there you go. I remember him turning to me and going, bro, this life ain't for you. And I remember thinking, what? I was like, no, yeah, it is for me, right? You know, this was earlier on uh, before I went to boarding school. But I think the reason he said that, and now I think about it, about how people also treated me there, is I think people realized I was clever. And they realized because I was clever, they almost had this like protective thing around me, which is, you know, some people know that, all right, this guy is not going to do anything in his life. So they just go, okay, cool, come and join us. And then there's other people where you go, actually, there's something different about him. And so I do remember after that, I just thought, yeah, well, if the lead gangster <laughs> basically says this life ain't for ain't for me, then I guess it's not for me then, isn't it? <laughs> so that was the end of that. I mean, it's unusual, right? Unusual to be told by the person that may be usurping you that it's not for you. Um, one thing that we have in common, um, I mean, we have a fair amount in common. I think the most obvious thing that we have in common is we're both fucking addicted to LinkedIn and basically both equally insufferable on it. Um, (laughs) but other than that, um, we both, uh, talk quite a lot about the impact of losing our father so young. Mm. Um, and certainly a really pivotal moment in my life. And I don't know if you're comfortable talking about what it means to you to have lost your dad so young as well, early 20s, same as me. Um, what impact did that have on you, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so my dad passed away, um, on the 5th of April, 2016, actually. Um, and Fun fact, this, by the way, is, 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 again, sometimes it's so crazy how the world works, which is on the 5th of April, 2022, so basically a few months ago. So on the six-year anniversary was the day that I met up with the guys at Brain Labs to take pictures that we'd use for like the... PR and buzz around the acquisition. And I remember thinking that and just thinking, wow, that's so incredible. And I think that I actually cried because I just thought, man, it'd be so incredible if he was there. But but in terms of the impact um, of my of my dad, um, so what was very what was interesting about it was, you know, so he passed away because of a stroke. He had a first stroke when I was in sixth form, so year 13. Um, And I actually, I remember that conversation because, you know, someone called me. I was like, oh my God, what's happened? And I rushed back to the hospital. The second stroke, uh, which was a few years afterwards, was actually um, a pretty uh, traumatic one because I was in the flat with him. And I basically had just... I just woken up the next day and we'd had some builders in to sort some stuff. And I went into the room to ask him a question about the builders. And all I just see him is just there on the bed. I was like, what the heck? And I, and, and, and I was just freaking out. So, oh my God, what's happening? What's happening? And I actually even asked like the build, actually it was people come to fix the boiler. And I was like, please, can you help? And it was like this, this poor <laughs> boiler a guy came to fix a boiler and ended up you know trying to pump my dad's chest but you know he passed away way earlier um in the early night and i think one of the things and i only have shared this with my co-founder ambrose um before he actually passed away one of the things and it was again so so like absolutely crazy Two weeks before, I had actually got him a flight to to go to Ghana, where he'd spent a lot of time in Ghana, and he'd come back two weeks before. And I remember him saying, you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of what you're doing. This was like in the 
kind of early stages of fan bites. Like we hadn't really, you know, hit product market fit and we hadn't really settled on the model we're doing. Beforehand, we're doing like competitions or some random stuff like that. But he saw that and he just thought, you know, that's really cool. I'm so proud of you. I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm so proud of you. And then, you know, like a few weeks afterwards, he passes away. And I think that just gave me this like insane amount of self-belief and this insane amount of determination, which was, I felt like I was growing and doing fan bites for my dad. When I announced to the rest of the team that we sold the business, after I went through, you know, the like business strategy and how this helps fan bites grow and how it's great for them. I remember pausing and saying, and the one thing that really drove me was that my dad passed away. And for me, this business had to have a successful exit. So I think that really changed the way that I thought about fan bites. Like I always had this like irrational self-belief that like there was no other option than for this business to be a success. Um, that definitely was the way that I felt about it because he'd almost like seen it and it just felt like there was no way like... If I failed, I would have failed him, you know? Um, and so that was definitely quite a big uh, trigger there. Have you read um, Think and Grow Rich? Yeah. So I read Think and Grow Rich. Um, one of my favorite books, actually. Yeah. Sounds similar, right? As in, you know, that that book ultimately is all about mindset. There's a lot of this kind of stuff. You, you know, I read a lot of these self-helpy type books. Mm. I personally am a big fan of them. Um, obviously, some the truth is somewhere in the middle between the willing the world into the way you want it to be and mm. some practical realities of, of working hard in between. Um, mm. But <laughs> a lot of the things that you believe in, a lot of the attitude that you show uh, often reminds me of some of these types of books. Uh, so this is a nice segue into Fanbytes. So tell us, how old were you when you started Fanbytes? How did it start? What does Fanbytes do? What was the point of Fanbytes at the time compared to what it is now? Uh, so I was 21. So I started Fanbytes, yeah, five years ago um, when I was in my second year of university. And beforehand, we tried to do this really funky business that we basically saw in the US. Um, so I was always, you know, tinkering around with ideas which could leverage social. And the reason why was because I had, you know, I'd had a nice chunk of money from Entrepreneur Express, which was all about, you know, which I then realized the value of it was all in like the Facebook pages and all that stuff. Right. So, um, so that was the reason, um, that I started thinking around with it. So we had this different idea, which basically was like, you could win these amazing experiences with like celebrities. If you basically donated or you bought merch or something, basically there's a company which exists for this It's called Omaze. So we basically tried to copy that exact thing because, you know, Omaze started in the US and they were focusing on, you know, the Justin Bieber's of the world, etc. So we basically, I saw that making money and they'd raise some money. I was like, cool, let's do that in the UK. So I tried to do that. Um, I, I then recruited my co-founder Ambrose to try and do that. We did not get anywhere. The reason why we didn't get anywhere was because we focused on like singers and bands, basically like we tried to get people like Adele on by emailing info at Adele.com. <laughs> like what the fuck? Like just so like, that, that's so stupid. Would have made a good story though. It would have, right? It'd have made an incredible story. You know, these guys got Adele to come to sing in your, I don't know, kitchen or something. Um, but then what we ended up doing was we ended up finding uh, this YouTuber called Jake West. And Jake West had a, pretty significant following but he was like a singer who had a big youtube audience and we tried to get and we did a campaign with him which absolutely bombed and the reason why it bombed was because jay quest bought all his followers um so that didn't work but what actually it got us thinking was okay let's find other people who actually have like bigger audiences or better audiences and so we got this other youtuber called uh sam king to do it and he actually drove a lot of purchases. We were like, ooh, this is interesting. And then we did a third one. And here's actually how kind of like fanbytes truly came to be. Then we did a third one with a girl called Kira, Kira something. 
And basically the experience was to go to Go Ape and to go to Go Ape with her. And I was like, oh, actually, let's just get, you know, Go Ape to give us freebies, right? Like rather than us paying for the Go Ape experience. So then I called up Go Ape and I was like, hey, so we're doing this thing, etc." And he said, okay, well, how much should we pay? And I was like, oh, like there's the money. All right. Now this makes sense. And at that point, I was like, oh, you know, like uh, 300 pounds. <laughs> Just said the biggest thing I could think of for him to say yes to. Again, a bit of that poverty mindset there, which is like, oh, 300 pounds, here you go. Um, and then it was at that point that I thought, wow, okay, brands want to tap into this YouTuber's audience. And I'd also been seeing like my family members, like my nephews also like they they kept getting influenced by you know what ksi was wearing what this person was wearing i was like okay that's interesting like here's where the opportunity was so then we changed the business to be actually more around helping brands to tap into this new wave of influencers because i realized that's what goip wanted i realized that's what like the kind of my cousin who at that time i want to say was like 17 18 that's what he was being influenced by and then we're off to the races so we got Go Ape and then we got Pop Chips and then we got Grabble. Then we got you. Then we got you to pay us some money. Yeah, mate. Uh, early doors on, on the, the, the profit, you know, with Grabble, couldn't make our own business work, but really helped early doors with a lot of others. Yeah, exactly. And so, so we got people like that to just do, you know, some like Instagram campaigns, YouTube campaigns. So that went well. And in our first year, I think we did uh, 400 grand or something like that in revenue. That was in 2017. Uh, and then in 2018 was when we raised our first bit of money. Again, this whole time I was in uni, I had recruited my co-founder Ambrose and I'd also recruited Mitchell, uh, CTO. Ambrose was at Imperial, Mitchell was in Nottingham, and basically we just kept tinkering and working and working. And then second year did 1 million, crazy jump, because we started to focus on Snapchat and those influencers there. And then we start broadening out to music labels. Next year we did 1.7 million. Um, and then we raised some more money. And it was really around 2019 that I think we got our, like, got our act together. At that time, we then became like 20 people. And then, yeah, and then 2020 pandemic year, we grew to about uh, 42 people. So we doubled the team size. And then in 2021, grew to 65 people. Revenue became, you know, pretty, pretty substantial. And uh, yeah, and then we sold the business in 2022. Story done. <laughs> there's a shift between you know talking in revenue and talking in people it's part of that poverty mindset it's part of that privacy <laughs> it's part of it accidental part of it intentional well the reason why is because uh i guess if you know what uh you know 2021 revenue is you'd kind of know the exact answer okay fine fair yes <laughs> yeah exactly but it was eight figures okay talk to us a little bit about how one sells an agency because before we do, a lot of our listeners are actually agency owners, right? And agencies come in all shapes and sizes. Talk to us a little bit about how you, how one values a business. How do you go through the sales process? You know, educate us. Cool. All right. So how do you set up your business to sell? So, um, so we actually began our process roughly October. Yes, October. Because I do remember on my birthday on my 27th birthday, reading a bunch of legal documents. Um, so we began a process then. Uh, and how it looks is, you know, you appoint an M&A advisor. The good thing for us was we had a lot of already um, inbound interest. And so we appointed an M&A advisor. And for that, you have to find the best one, ideally someone who sold to similar companies uh, that you want to. And then we just began the process and we were talking to potential people, et cetera. And I think there's a number of things. If you're like an agency owner that you want to make sure that you do, right? Number one, you want to ensure that you have diversified um, clients. That's huge. You want to definitely do that. If one customer makes up over 10% of your business, that's not good. We didn't have that problem at all. 
you want to also ensure that you have the right systems. And the good thing about Fanbyte and the reason why we, I'd be very honest, we, our multiple was extremely good was because we had created tech, which was doing a lot of the work. So we, so we built a tech tool, which does like workflow for campaigns and also a tech tool, which did like influencer identification and all that stuff. And so that did add a lot more um, scale and leverage to us. How do you communicate with the team? Because I've got lots of friends who've sold agencies before and uh, and the lock-in is usually very long. Like, you know, quite famously, it's one of the longest actually expected in most career paths. So, you know, that's usually their problem. In yours, I know that we were speaking privately and so I hope you don't mind me sharing it, but yours is, you know, months, not years. It's at the lower end. You know, obviously you're locked in. They have to take on the expertise. They have to have the transition smooth. But... Um, it's an unusual and amazing thing to be able to negotiate It's every founder's dream. At the same time, uh, you know, what are they really buying? They're buying some fucking smart systems, a good brand, a great clientele roster that, like you said, is diversified and obviously people. Yeah. So how do you, how do you motivate people then? You know, they, they don't know how long you're going to be around for. They don't know how this transition's going to go. I mean, you know, like any change, there's uncertainty. They have jobs secured, right? So, you know, we're also coming into a recession. It's worth saying that their situation is going to be a lot better than most people's. But how do you work on that motivation? And what did you learn through the process of that as well? Yeah. So I think one of the things I did realize through through this whole process was like people are motivated by different things. And, you know, fanbytes in our team, as mentioned, we have a, we had about 65 people and I'd say probably about 70 percent of them were under the age of maybe 20, 26, 27. Right. So for them, it's not so much about the financial upside, but it is about almost like the ability to play bigger. The fact that, you know, Brain Labs have a team of 800 people across, you know, four different continents. Really, it, it is about that playing bigger for them. And it's almost like, you know, appealing to the idea of the fact that if I'm a 25-year-old or 24-year-old, being able to say that I joined this company and then we went global, like that's a big thing for like a young person to feel like a step up in their career. So I think that was that was quite a big thing that we um, leaned on. And then also, you know, to be honest, there there were a lot of people at Fanbytes and there are a lot of people at Fanbytes whose core focus is really like, how can they win, right? And And if they're on the winning team, they will just keep being here. And I think I did have to do some discussions with some of them to say, look, like actually this puts us on a bigger path to win. So those were the two ways that I solved that um, for the people at Fanbytes. And I'm so happy to say that, you know, I know we announced the deal, uh, what, five, six weeks ago. Like no one has left as a consequence of the deal. No one's, you know, everyone's excited. We've had several parties to celebrate. But I think that it really is about appealing to their sense of you now get to play bigger because as a 65 person business, that's cool. But like, we weren't able to give you the opportunity to play like really big and now you can. And actually that's more important to a lot of young people than just the money. Okay. Let's talk about money. <laughs> um, how do you think, how do you think having money is going to affect you personally? Do you still feel poor? Uh, no, I actually, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it's funny. I actually stopped the, I think that kind of like poverty mindset, I genuinely think that it stopped after I, I think after the second year of Fanbytes, when we hit a million in revenue. So at that point, I just felt I have a set of skills. I've built an engine, which basically can, can, can ensure that I never have to want in life. Um, and, uh, and that completely got rid of any, of any poverty mindset. Okay, so back to the first question. What's it like having money? What are you going to do with that? Have you thought about um, it? So it's been six weeks, right? So, you know, what was great about the deal was it was all cash, which is, again, a very interesting thing. Is that, is that, is that what explains your diamond-crusted teeth? <laughs> it explains the diamond-crusted rings that I've got now. <laughs> 
it was all cash, um, which is, again, a very interesting thing. Like, you know, sometimes people will say a number that they sold the business for and it's like, okay, cool. But like half of it wasn't stock. It's like, well, actually you haven't really sold the business. So, you know, since then, um, six weeks in, um, I actually haven't bought anything, mate. Like I actually have not bought anything. Uh, the most I've done is nothing. <laughs> like literally I bought a new pair of Doc Martens and that was it. Um, so no. But have you been thinking about it? Because you've got money now. So what are you going to do with it? What is the plan? I mean, there's no fucking point sticking it in a mountain or in a vault. Like you're surely going to do something with it. Have you started thinking? And look, I'm asking because it's a really, like my opinion, I, I'm always looking to learn. Yeah. Right? I, I've, I had a couple of investments that came that came well. And so I came into money for like the first time, um, you know, last summer. And it was, it was from investing, interestingly, but it was like, huh. I was the first time I was like, I don't actually know what to do with money. I actually have no idea what one does with money because yeah, yeah, yeah. I never had any. So I didn't really understand what one does. Right. But when you do, you're like, shit, there's actually like, there's a, there's a science to this. Yes. There's some logic. There's some strategies I need to learn. So have you been spending time learning what one does with money? Have you got ideas of what you want to do? What football club are you buying? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, like when we signed the letter of intent and, you know, I knew Brain Labs were a great company and uh, M&A advisors had told us, you know, these guys aren't going to pull out of a deal, et cetera. So I think what I started to do was start to like educate myself on wealth, et cetera, right? So to be honest, it's nothing particularly fancy, right? So, you know, 10% in crypto, which is quite a big chunk of money in crypto. Sometimes I tell people, oh my God, that is very aggressive, but yeah, you know, crypto stocks, index funds. I've actually spent a lot of time with like wealth managers recently. And, and I've come to realize that, you know, most of them, their whole thing is we'll just chuck it into a fund and get you 8%. But then there are some really good ones. You know, there's a thing which I don't know if your audience would um, know this, but you know, when you, when you get to a certain level of wealth, what you can do is you can basically, you know, like take out loans against your, you know, cash or shares or things like that. Right. So I started doing that. And to me, it's just opened up a whole new world. Cause I'm just like, hang on a sec. So you're telling me that I could buy say 5 million pounds worth of index funds, just get those to appreciate and just take out loan 70% of that. So I just have now free money effectively because it's a very low, low, low interest rate of like, say, three and a half million, which I can then use to go buy property, which in itself wouldn't, you know, because it's because uh, of the tax advantages, I can just go do that. It's like, what? This feels so illegal, but it's so not legal. You know, it's, it's so not illegal. So I think I've actually been spending a lot of my time, like, understanding wealth rather than actively doing like something, right? Index funds, they're there. Stocks are there. Crypto are there. But like understanding wealth is actually what I'm spending. I say, you know, probably up until July, I've been reading one book a week about like wealth and managing money and all that stuff. What happens when you do leave fan bites? Do you think you're going to be like lost or are you already just ready for the next thing? So I don't know specifically what I'm going to do after fan buys, but what I do know that is that it'd be something in a very unsexy industry. Um, that is my main criteria because <laughs> I think that with fan bites, is that just so you can finally finally match your looks? There you go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What's it called when you have like founder market fit, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I think the thing with fanbytes, right, was like, fanbytes was too sexy, man. Like, it's like, you know, influencers, Gen Z, social media, TikToks, like buzzword, 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 buzzword. And to be honest, there is a reason why I think I, I think that we won in the space because we were not, and I personally was not afraid of being, you know, shouty and putting myself out there and, you know, all that stuff. But I think the next industry just has to be something which is, you know, slightly unsexy, right? Because at some point you want it to be around like being able to execute well rather than just being, you know, rather than like 
riding a market wave, which both can work, but I really do believe in almost like, you know, something unsexy, which doesn't attract too many entrants. Um, and where you build a very small focused team who are just, you know, doing, doing very well. That would probably be the general niche, but I don't know specifically what I'd want to do. What is your biggest fear now that you're out of building fan bites? What's your biggest fear that might happen to you over the next few years? Because you built a lot of identity around mm. your journey in building fan bites. Do you ever worry yeah. if you go like become insignificant or irrelevant? Or like do you think a lot about reinvention? A lot of leading questions. So one of the things, and I was speaking to a number of um a number of other founders or people who you know sold the businesses and uh a lot of them talk about this, I guess, paralysis, right? Which is you sold you sold a business, so now your fear is that the next thing that you do is not gonna be as successful, so you just end up not, you know, going for it. Or you end up kind of playing it safe, right? So you end up being a VC or something. <laughs> so you end up being a VC or something like that. Um and I don't think I feel that. And I don't think that's a fear of mine at all. Um, because I because I always look back at, you know, the person I was before I before I started Fanbytes and then before I then sold Fanbytes. And I just see it as this like ongoing progression. Um, so I'm not necessarily fussed about, you know, making sure the next thing, you know, for example, you know, Fanbyte sold in the mid eight figures. I'm not actually particularly that bothered about then the next thing being like nine figures and all that stuff, right? You know, doesn't really bother me. Um, I think for me, my biggest fear is actually more around being complacent and not understanding that like, I will not always be a 27 year old who doesn't really have any responsibilities. That for me is probably like my biggest fear, which is, which is the fact that, you know, I would like to start a family at some point, etc., and go in your entire life has basically been you putting yourself first and you being able to wake up and go anywhere that you want and basically dictate your life however you want. And you've also made this amount of, money which like has you set but you don't know what happens when you're 40 you don't know what happens when you're 35 right so i think that is my biggest fear is almost like in the next business that i start not coming knowing fully well and again we can't bullshit ourselves here like knowing fully well i will not have the exact same level of hunger that i had uh when building fan bites and figuring out a reason to keep going, right? Because with fanbytes, when times were hard, I thought about my dad. With fanbytes, when things were hard, I thought about, you know, living in that council uh, estate and thinking, I'm not meant to be here. And now if I start something, I just email a bunch of people and, and I say, okay, yeah, cool. I'm starting something. They go, right, here is five to 10 million. Go ahead. Right? And it's like, cool, what's the forcing function? Like, what's the reason not to just take things chill? Um, so I think that's my biggest fear. But it's not so much around like the next thing has to be bigger. Because I know that's a big thing for a lot of founders, second time founders who've exited. It's like, okay, now the next thing needs to be this. I'm like, oh, I don't really care. <laughs> so it doesn't really bother me. Okay. Last question, Timo. Young entrepreneurs, what is your advice for them to get started up on their journey, have no fear and take on a career that they can have a massive fucking successful exit and be chilling a week at a time in whatever city or beach they feel like <laughs> by the age of 27? How do they get to that? Okay. So what advice? So you want to play in a game where you have at least like an 80% chance of winning. And I'll unpack that a bit. So when I speak to young entrepreneurs or, you know, founders, even people who are older, I say, oh, what are you working on? And it's something like just mad complex. It's like, you know, a fintech thing, which does this, 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 or it's like this, you know, crypto thing, which does blah, 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 or, you know, this, this thing to tackle 
climate change or something, just like something really difficult, which requires a mass amount of users, which requires, you know, some technological innovation. And this is often for the first time founders. And every time I finish talking to them, I just go, man, like you are going to be in a incredibly difficult business. Whereas what I would say to them is like, think about a game in which you can win like 80% of the time, or rather, you know, think about a game where you have an 80% chance of winning. For example, with me and Fanbytes, like lots of people build agencies, sure. Lots of people don't sell agencies or scale it to the thing that we did, but you didn't have to be a genius to do it. What you had to be was just like sufficiently good at a number of things and just like generally pick a market where, you know, things were going up and then you ride the wave. Um, so that's generally the advice that I give that I always go like, you know, yes, it's great to think about you building this huge billion dollar thing, but you can actually build something which has like a very um, minimal downside and just execute well and like focus on a few core things like you know I was pretty good at marketing and sales and and all that stuff and I brought that into the agency world and now I'm like cool now I've exited the business and it's done very well I've done very well and now I can go do if I choose to go do something else which has that complexity but for first time people even second time people you know everyone goes crazy trying to do this crazy business and raise 10 15 20 30 million it's like bro like play a game you can win win that game get some numbers on the scoreboard and then afterwards go do the crazy thing Timothy Armu, co-founder of Fanbytes. If you found this interview as fascinating as I did, let us know. We'd love to hear from you, especially what you think would make our show better. You can email us at hello at secretleaders.com. Next week on Secret Leaders. Even if you have an idea right now, really the thing that one needs to do is to figure out what problem you're solving because there is nothing sadder than an amazing product that has been sweated over over a very long period of time that is seeking a problem to solve. That was Oleg Formenko, the founder of Sweatcoin, an app which rewards users for walking by giving them a cryptocurrency. They have over 100 million users, and he started it shortly after his previous startup failed. Everyone was telling him to get a proper job. Find out why he didn't listen to them. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stoneman.